Good morning, Kettlebrook. Great to see all of you today. My name's Noelle, and we're just so blessed to be here and to be able to worship with all of you. Um, if you'll stand with me, we'll start with our first song. And I love the first uh, lines of this song where it says, All the worries of this world, I will lay them at your feet and surrender every anxious thought for perfect peace, your perfect peace. And that's such a comfort because I know that every day there's worries and there's anxieties and may we just cast it all at his feet this morning. Sing with us. This world, I will lay them at your feet, surrender every anxious thought for perfect peace, your perfect peace. All the loved ones I hold dear. Tell you that I need you, Jesus. 
morning, everyone. Good morning to our um, family that is gathering with us on our live stream this morning. My name is Kara, and I'm part of our REACH Global team here at Kettlebrook, and I just want to welcome you. Um, just a reminder that our weekly announcements, things you need to know, calendar events, we all have um, on our website now or in an email that we're sending out weekly. If you're not on that email and you would like to be on that email, you can email info at kettlebrook.org or you can call our office to be put on the list. Um, if you're new with us this morning, we give an especially warm welcome to you, and we would love to know that you are here. There are connect cards in the seat backs in front of you that you can fill out and drop in the glass box on your way out the door, and one of our pastors would be happy to contact you. So if you are new, you may be wondering, who are we, um, Kettlebrook Church? And what we like to say is that we are a family of followers of Jesus helping others follow Jesus. And what that means is that we follow Jesus as Lord of our lives. We try our best to do that together as family. We do not do that perfectly because we all mess up, but we love each other and we try to follow him together. And in the midst of that, we try to help others follow Jesus. So kind of in that regard, today I have just a few things to talk with you about. One is I wanted to give you an update on um, our Afghans. Anyone who's been with us since August knows this has been a huge effort we've been involved in. We have three care teams surrounding three Afghan families. And I just wanted to give you a little update. Um, our first family arrived in November. They are not only English speakers, but they also speak both Afghan languages. And God gave them to us ahead of time. Um, they are settled. They started work three weeks ago, working full-time, overtime. Now that all of their documents are in and they're legal to work, they are well on their way to restarting their lives. But what is great is that our next two families that arrived three weeks ago speak very little to no English. And so our first family has been tremendous in helping us acclimate the new families. The two new families came from two different forts of 68,000 Afghans coming to the U.S. Guess what? They know each other. They fought together in the same 10-man um, unit along with our soldiers. And so when they saw each other at the duplex where they are both now living, they embraced, of course, shocked. So they are together. We're waiting for their documents all to come in. Um, the kids are involved in school and the the husbands will have their first sort of pre-interview at a job this week. So thank you, Kettlebrook, for your support. The families are well on their way. Um, super exciting. Okay, very quickly. Sorry, Troy. We are launching this month um, our new series for February called Identity and Intimacy. Everything you need to know is in this booklet that you can get out in the lobby. Parents, we're going to be touching on some sensitive topics this month. So consider whether or not you want your kids um, to hear them. But there's some important events. Next week we have a guest speaker, Lou Phillips. He'll be here and he will also be speaking at Torch on Monday night. Um, let's see. The 26th, that weekend is our big weekend. Julie Slatterly will be coming. She'll be here. She's doing an all-day seminar. She'll be speaking to our youth. Again, everything is found on this um, bulletin that we have in the back. So please grab one if you'd like more information. So please join me now in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you um, that you are Lord of all. 
You are greater than everything in our lives. And you invite us to follow you um, in your plans and purposes for the world. So I pray, Father, as we enter into this series, that you would give us humble hearts and open minds to see what your word says about these important topics. Father, we lift up to you Seed of Hope, our local partner, um, pregnancy, uh, Crisis Pregnancy Center here in West Bend. We pray that you would encourage the staff and give them boldness as they work with people who are coming to them in a time of crisis and need. We pray that you will help them fill in the gaps um, where they are shorthanded and that anyone who may want to help work with their um, center would go and do so. Father, we lift up this time to you today. We pray for Troy as he brings your word to us. I pray that you would open our ears and hearts to hear your word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.
Good morning, Kettlebrook family. Uh, can I say I miss you? I miss you. I, I've, I've been gone the last three weeks, and I was thinking, I think the last time I was gone for three weeks has been almost never, I think, when we went to Congo to bring Ephraim home, but that was like eight years ago. And I've been able to be blessed to be around in three different Brook churches over the past three weeks, and greetings from all of them to you, but I do miss being here, and I'm glad to be back. Although I did hear that last week, I guess when Matt Erickson preaches here, you get like he gets amens and stuff. So I don't know what that's about. So let's keep that rolling because uh, apparently that was something he asked for. But uh, this morning we launch into another short series uh, called Identity and Intimacy. We're going to take a walk through the scriptures and see how God's word informs things like our identity, our intimacy, our bodies, our sexuality. And I think God was gracious to us because we spent the last four weeks talking about what it looks like to be united because these issues that we are going to talk through can be some of the most charged and emotional and even divisive issues that we navigate. At the same time, as I think about it, these issues of identity and intimacy can also be perhaps the most uniting things that we wrestle with because every single one of us grapples with our identity and understanding who we are. Every single one of us desires intimacy. Every single one of us has a body. And every single one of us has been impacted by sexuality. And so God has a lot of things to say about these things. And so his story can be er good news. His story can be good news to every single one of us. And what we're going to do over the next four weeks is we're going to take a walk through four chapters of the gospel, if you would, the creation, the fall, the redemption, and the restoration. Now, I know that some of you are already maybe feeling a little bit uncomfortable about this topic because you've never heard the word sex uh, mentioned in a church gathering before. Trust me, I get it, okay? So I, I, the world, though, is talking about this, amen? I mean, you can't watch a Super Bowl without a halftime show and have to talk about it. Like there's, it, every, it's everywhere and it's being talked about. And it's, if we're a family, we as a family have to talk about this. Now you might say, Troy, that, that, here's the problem. My family never talked about this, Troy. My parents never talked to me about this. Or Troy, we never talked to our kids about these things. And perhaps that's part of the problem. We have to talk about these things. So now to be clear about my goal, my goal is not to try to convince everyone to agree with God's story. Not everyone is going to do that. If you have a different worldview, some of what we're going to cover in the next four weeks may not make sense. But the message that we are going to share is really intended for those people who are saying, I want to follow Jesus. I want to submit all of my life to Jesus, including my identity, my intimacy, my body, and my sexuality to him. Now, as I was thinking through this, and I've been thinking through this for a long time, okay, I haven't spent as much time working on it in a series ever, but I've, I've been wanting to help you balance a couple things in today and, and going forward. How do we balance the clarity of God's Word with the compassion of God's heart? How do we balance the clarity of God's word and the compassion of God's heart? Because Jesus was clear, he's also very compassionate. And the reason he's compassionate is because the reality is that every one of us in the room has been impacted by sin. Our identity, our intimacy, our sexuality, our bodies are all impacted by sin. Sins that have been committed against us, the sins that we have committed. Every single one of us in this room, watching online, is sexually broken because of sin. 
every single one of us, which levels the playing field and allows every single one of us to understand that the gospel can be good news to every single one of us as well. Regardless of your story, my story, your brokenness, my brokenness, your sin, my sin. So the task today that Ryan and I have is to talk about creation and how creation impacts intimacy, identity, sexuality, these things. And I want to do that. Um, you'd think I'd go to Genesis to start. I don't want to start with Genesis. Lou Phillips, who's coming next week, we've been processing this a little bit together, and, and he helped me frame things out. I actually want to begin with the end in mind. I want to begin with an end in mind. So as I talk about creation, I actually want to start in Revelation. Revelation chapter 21. This is the second to the last chapter in all of Scripture. I would encourage you to turn there. Uh, Revelation chapter 1. I forgot to put the page number up there. I'll have it on the screen, but it's basically the, almost the last page. Okay? Revelation chapter 21. Uh, right before we're about to read, we see one who is seated, seated on a throne, and there's a judgment. It's Jesus. And um, there's this book of life, and he's looking through and seeing whose name is in there. Um, but right after that, what we read is what we're going to see in chapter 21, which is a vision that the Apostle John has of the end of the world as we know it, if you would. So I'd invite you to stand with me as we read the Word of God. I'm going to pray, and then we're going to read the first four verses here. Gracious Father, I pray that Jesus would become greater, that we become less. Father, open our ears to hear and eyes to see what you have for us. It's immeasurably more than we can ask for or imagine. Father, speak to our hearts today. Reveal your clarity and your compassion for us, your desire for your bride. In Jesus' name, amen. So chapter 21 of Revelation reads like this. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying this, Now the dwelling of God is with men, and he will live with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. This is God's word. Amen? Go ahead and have a seat. If we begin with the end in mind, what we find here is that in Revelation there is a new heaven and a new earth. In other words, the, the existing earth and the existing heaven are, are done away with and there's this new recreation. And in this new heaven and new earth there's this imagery. And the imagery of, is of God as a husband and his people, his bride. There's a wedding so often when I think we talk about the Scriptures, we think about the Scriptures, what we see is we see a book of rules. Hey, don't do this, do that, this is right, this is wrong, this is good, this is bad. And there's some of that in here, but that's not primarily what this is written to us for. This is primarily a relational text. When we look at it as just a rule book, we're missing God's story. Not long ago, I was with a couple, and we were talking through issues of identity and intimacy and sexuality. And so I asked them, hey, I said, what, what, what do you know that God's Word has to say about these things? And they were, they were great. They were really honest. And they just said, Try, I, we don't really know that much. Besides, maybe it was just, you know, you're not supposed to cheat on each other, that kind of thing. So I was really appreciated their honesty. But the Scriptures has a lot to say about these matters. Yes, scriptures speak to sex. 
Yes, Scripture will address heterosexuality and homosexuality and lust and masturbation and pornography and adultery and rape and polygamy, all these things. It speaks to it because it's practical. But this is primarily meant to be relational. The Scriptures point us to a God who is always was and always will be. And that we can only understand truly who we are in light of our relationship with him. And so in Revelation, we get this picture of an eternity filled with identity and intimacy. Those people who are called by God, who have trusted in Christ, confess, repent. We are his people, his bride. That's our identity. Whether you're married, you're single, you're young, you're old, we're his children. And he dwells with and lives with his people. There's no more pain, crying, or tears. It sounds great. Can I get an amen to that? But what's interesting in Revelation chapter 1 is there's no reference to our earthly marriages and there's no reference to sex. We don't find it in here. We only see one marriage, the marriage of God, as the groom and his bride, his people. Now that might surprise you, but it, it wouldn't have surprised the authors of this book before even what we see here. The Apostle Paul was a guy who hated Christians. He was killing them, if you would, and he met the resurrected Jesus Christ, became an ambassador for him. And he was helping, he had planted, helped plant a church in the city of Ephesus, and he is writing to the church in Ephesus in a letter called Ephesians, and he talks to the husbands and wives, trying to give them practical advice. What does it look like to be a husband and a wife? And here's what he, he writes. He says, husbands, love your wives. Can you read that bold part with me? Just as Christ loved the church. Okay? And he gave himself up for her. Husbands, you want to know what it looks like to love your wife? You look at Jesus Christ and his love for the church. And then he goes on and he says, after all, no one ever hated his own body, but he feeds and cares for it. What does it say? Just as Christ does the church for we're members of his body. And then Paul goes on to reference Genesis chapter 2, which we're going to get to. He says, For this reason the man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife. The two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, but I'm talking about Christ in the church. Over and over and over again, Paul's like, if you want to even think about marriage, you need to, you need to, you need to go back to what this is about. Christ and his church. His bride. And so what we read in Revelation 21 would not have been a surprise to Paul at all, and it certainly wouldn't have been a surprise to Jesus. So we're working our way back, okay? Revelation, Paul, let's look at Jesus. Jesus begins one of his parables by saying this. He says, the kingdom of heaven is like a king who prepared a wedding banquet for his son. Hmm, interesting. He's saying heaven is like a king who prepared a wedding banquet for his son. Language shouldn't surprise us. Or how about this? Jesus is interacting with a group of Sadducees, and the Sadducees were sad, you see. And here's why they were sad. It's because they didn't believe in resurrection. And they wanted to try to prove Jesus there was no resurrection, and so here's what they did. They said, Jesus, here, we got a scenario for you. There was a, a, a woman who married a guy. Uh, her husband died. She became a widow. But the guy had six brothers. So then they stepped in. The, the, one of them stepped in and married her. But then he died. And then the next one stepped in, married her, and he died all the way through until all seven married her and died. I mean, you talk about a widowmaker in this. I mean, this is, this is, this is a, a hard scenario. But they say, okay, Jesus, so in that scenario, which would be her husband in the resurrection, Jesus? Hmm? How's that going to work? And here's how he responds. Listen carefully. He says, you're in error 
And in the original language, the word, words really mean, you have been led astray, you have been deceived, because you do not know the Scriptures or the power of God. He says, at the resurrection, people will neither marry nor be given in marriage. And, and do you see that, family? This is what it says. In the resurrection, there will be neither marriage nor giving in marriage. And that might mess with us. Now, he certainly is popping the Sadducees' bubble, right? Like, you can hear it. Okay? But he may also be popping a little bit of your bubble in that. Because perhaps you believe that eternity in heaven is all about you reuniting with your loved ones. And I understand why we would desire that. And I'm not saying that may not happen. But, but what he's doing is he's saying in Revelation, there is a grander, a greater picture than that. Revelation paints a picture of us being reunited with our Creator in intimacy with him, in relationship with him. And this isn't a one-off that Jesus references here. Not only does he talk about Jesus or himself as, the, as the, uh, the son of this kingdom of the wedding feast, he speaks of himself as a groom. Jesus talks about himself as a groom, which seems a little weird. I'll give you a scenario here. John the Baptist was a forerunner of the Messiah, was pointing to Jesus. He had his own disciples, and his disciples were noticing that Jesus... Jesus' disciples were not fasting, which was part of kind of like the, some of the things you would do in holiness and try to fast. You, you, you deny yourself. And so these disciples of John the Baptist, they come to Jesus and they say, Jesus, how come like the Pharisees fast and how come our John, we, our John the Baptist disciples fast, but your disciples don't fast? Here's how Jesus responds. He says, Sorry, how is it that we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? Jesus answered, how can the guests of the bridegroom, that's just groom, how can the guests of the groom mourn while he is with them? The time will come when the, the bridegroom will be taken from them, then they'll fast. Who's, the, who's he talking about? Who's the bridegroom he's talking about? This is important. Who's he talking about? The bridegroom. Himself. He's referring to Himself. But you're wondering, you're like, Jesus, wait a minute, they're not talking about a wedding, they're talking about fasting. And why do you talk about yourself as a groom? Because he knows where this is all pointed. He's saying, I'm the groom. You don't fast when you're with me. And I could go on. He, he describes himself as groom 11 distinct times in the Gospels. This isn't a one-off. We could talk about how his first miracle was at a wedding, turned water into wine. We could keep going, but we need to keep going backwards. So we were at Revelation, Paul, Jesus. Jesus wasn't bringing up a new idea here either. I want to show you a couple prophets. Isaiah 62 says this, As a bridegroom rejoices over his bride, so will your God rejoice over you. Not a new idea. This is Old Testament, folks. Hosea, next one, says this, in chapter 2. In that day, declares the Lord, capital L-O-R-D, this is the word of God. He's speaking himself directly. You will call me my husband. I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you in righteousness and justice, in love and compassion. I will betroth you in faithfulness, and you will acknowledge the Lord. This is not a new idea. It's language that is not only helping us to see what was, but what will be. So let's Go back to what was in Genesis chapter 1. Now, Genesis chapter 1, I understand that, that some of you may struggle with the timing on creation and how that all works and how to interpret it. For today's discussion, uh, I would ask that we'd acknowledge that this is Hebrew poetry. We know that as a fact. And I would ask us just to observe what we find in here. 
remember that Scripture is relational. I'll also note uh, that this is what Jesus believed to be true, Jesus himself. And so that has to play into how we understand this. The Scriptures open up with these words. This is the first sentence in the Bible. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So God, God is not created. He is the creator, and he's distinct and different from his creation. And the first whole chapter of Genesis 1 displays his creative work. He speaks, and things come into existence. He sees that creation is good. Each element of creation builds upon itself. If you look in the Hebrew, you'll find each day builds. There's more words used to describe the beauty and what's going on until we get to day 6, the, the culmination, if you would, where we are blessed to be a part of that day. In verse 26 of chapter 1, we find this. And then God said, let us make man in our image, in our likeness. Let him rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air, over the livestock, over all the earth, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. And so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him male and female. He created them. And if we continue on in Genesis chapter 2, we zoom, we zoom in a little bit more, get some more detail on how this played out. So in chapter 2, verse 18, we find this. The Lord God said, it is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. Now the Lord God had formed out of the ground all the beasts of the field and the birds of the air, but for Adam no suitable helper was found. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man. In the Hebrew, a man is ish, and the woman is ish. Ah. Yeah, women say amen. Okay, the man said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she is taken out of man. For this reason, the man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and they will become one flesh. The man and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. Now again, regardless of how you struggle maybe to interpret what we read in Genesis 1 and 2, uh, I still submit myself to Jesus, and Jesus seems to read this as it is. Because in Matthew chapter 19, Jesus is trying to be trapped not by the Sadducees, by the Pharisees about divorce. And so here's what we find Jesus respond with in uh, Matthew chapter 19. He says to them, he says, haven't you read? Which maybe would have been a, a real jab. Because of course they would have read this. But he, haven't you read, he replied, that at the beginning the Creator made them male and female? And said, for this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and the two will become one flesh? So they are no longer two, but one. Therefore, what God has joined together, let man not separate. Jesus is bringing together Genesis 1 and Revelation 21. Because he's pointing ahead to God being joined together with his bride, his people. Now, if we look carefully at Genesis 1 and 2, we're going to find the text has a lot to say about our identity, our sexuality, and our intimacy. And I walk through, I'm going to walk through those three things with you. Our identity first. For every single human being, our created identity is that of image bearer. Can you say image bearer? So for every single human being, out of all of that God created in Genesis 1, it is only humanity that's made in the image of God. That's why we're the only creatures having this conversation. Because we're created as his image bearers. And as his image bearers, we were created to multiply and fill the earth. Why? Because we're bearing God's image everywhere that we go. We're filling the earth with his image. So this is our first and foremost identity. Before you are a son or a daughter, before you are a husband or a wife, before you are a father 
or a mother before you are a classmate, a teammate, an employee, an employer before you're a nerd, an athlete, an artist, an American, a Puerto Rican, black, white, I mean, young, old, married, single, you are an image bearer. Every single one of us and every single human was created in the image of God. And that's why it is absolutely critical, family. It's absolutely critical when we talk about these issues of identity and intimacy and sexuality, we must see every single human being as an image bearer first. Okay? So that, that, is, that is who they are, who we are. Our primary identity is that of image bearer. Now the problem, the problem, and we're going to talk more about this in week two, which is the fall in Genesis 3, is that we have comprehensively found ways to reject the identity that God has given us and he has bestowed upon us, and we spend our entire lives trying to manufacture our own identities. Manufacturing our identities based on our occupation, our success, or our failure, our personality, our spouse, our marital status, who our friends are or aren't, who we have sex with, how many kids we have, how much money we have, where we live. But to our detriment, every single one of these identities that we manufacture fall far short of our original created identity as image bearer of God. And so today, what, what, what the sadness is, is that so often we are trying to manufacture our identity when in fact we have been bestowed an identity by God as his image bearer. That's why we shouldn't be surprised when we find Jesus saying crazy things like this. Jesus says, anyone who loves his father or mother is not worthy of me. Anyone who loves his son or his daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Anyone who does not take up his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. By the way, this is before the cross, before Jesus went to the cross, that we would understand the cross as we do. Like he's saying, who does not take up his cross, who does not die to himself, and then he says, whoever finds his life will lose it. In other words, whoever's trying to manufacture an identity is going to lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find, will find their identity. This is what we find Jesus saying. Genesis 1 and 2, absolutely critical for us understanding our identity. Number two, Genesis speaks to our sexuality. Even before we were sinful, we were sexual, Okay. Even before we were sinful, we were sexual. One of the ways that's been really helpful for me to frame this out in the years past, someone once shared this with me, is that sex is often understood in three different ways. And I think it really encapsulates the, the reality. The, the first way that sex can often be understood is that sex is seen as God. Sex becomes God. It's what we call an idolatry. But basically what this means is that sex becomes the ultimate pursuit of our lives. If we don't have sex, we're incomplete. If we don't find sex, we're unfulfilled. It drives us, it defines us, and we pursue it with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. When the greatest commandment, Jesus says, is love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. God is God. Sex is not God. But can we acknowledge that very often if we look around the world, sex has become like a god. It has become an idolatry, and we are guilty of it. We're guilty of it. 
The second understanding is what, what, what's called sex is gross. So sex is not God, but sex is gross. And this one weighs heavy on my heart because typically this understanding of sex uh, being gross is because it comes out of significant trauma and pain and injury at the hands of sexuality. And for, for better or worse, whatever the case may be, whether it's inside or outside the church, many people have shared with me Many people have shared some of the trauma that they've experienced, and it breaks my heart. It weighs heavy on me. I know that you know people in your own life. You maybe have experienced that trauma, and so when you think about sex, it's gross because of the way that it's been used, weaponized or otherwise. The third way, though, that is sex is not meant to be God. It's not meant to be gross. It's meant to be a gift. And please hear me say this, it's very important. It's a gift. It is not the gift. It is not the ultimate gift. And so it created us as sexual beings. And in our sexuality, we see in Genesis that we're sexually complementary. Okay, complementary. We see this in Genesis that creation is full of complementary things. Light, dark, heavens, earth, each of these are masculine and feminine, complementing one another. Uh, Tim Keller puts it this way. They're interchangeable. He says, in Genesis 1, you see pairs of different but complementary things made to work together, heaven and earth, sea and land, even God and humanity. It is part of the brilliance of God's creation that diverse, unlike things, are made to unite and create dynamic wholes which generate more and more life and beauty through their relationships. That means that male and female have unique, non-interchangeable glories. They see and do things that the others, that the other cannot. It's the beauty of God's image that is reflected in the diversity of our complementary maleness and femaleness where God's image is fully reflected. So we were made sexually complementary. Now the arc of God's story doesn't end in Genesis chapters 1 and 2. We all know that. We don't live in Genesis 1 and 2. So we again are going to explore what this means next week as we look at the fall and what happens as things get pretty messy right after Genesis 1 and 2. But God's story has a lot to say about our sexuality. Number three, God's story speaks in Genesis to our intimacy. When God creates in Genesis 1, each element is deemed as good. In fact, humanity is deemed as what? Very good. So it's very good. We are very good. But in chapter 2, verse 18, we found something that was deemed not good, and it's that man would be alone. Why is this not good? Because we were created to be in relationship. This is about relationship. The scriptures are primarily relational. Relationship with God, our creator, and relationship with one another. We see in Genesis, Adam and Eve, they're walking together in the presence of one another. They're with God, walking with God, and they are naked, and there is no shame. Think about the last time you were naked in front of other people without any shame. It's probably a rare thing. They had complete vulnerability. They had complete transparency. They had complete security. There were insecurities. Complete intimacy. And in Revelation 21, we see it again. God and his bride, his people, he dwells with them. He lives with them. We were created not only to be made in God's image, but we were created to experience intimacy. And when I say intimacy, I'm not only talking about sex. Lou and I were talking, and he said this. He said, Troy, you can have a lot of sex and have no intimacy. You can have a lot of sex and have no intimacy. But he said you can have a lot of intimacy and have no sex as well. You have a lot of intimacy and have no sex. 
And that's apparently what we're going to find in eternity. A lot of intimacy with no sex. Why? Because these were gifts that God used to help us to fill the earth with his image, reflect the relationship that he has with us as his bride. Now, God, because of this gift he's given us, he also established some boundaries around this gift. I want to give you an illustration. Last spring, our children received a a, a Christmas gift. It was a late Christmas gift from one set of the grandparents. I have a picture of it here. It is a, a trampoline, okay? Now, Stephanie and I honestly wrestled through whether we we should even receive this gift. And the reason why is it's not because we didn't want our kids to have fun. Um, It's because these things are dangerous. And apparently the insurance companies agree. Okay? Like our underwriters, like, "You you got a trampoline now? Okay, here we go. But so even before setting this thing up, we sat down with the kids and we talked through some boundaries around this. We had to, hey, there's always going to be a net up. You can never go underneath it when anyone's bouncing on top of it, okay? It, it, it needs to, uh, what else do we say? There's a limit of how many people can be in there at one time. And then we had to have a rule later that was made because the two neighbor boys were in there and one of them just kicked one right in the mouth by accident, almost took all of his teeth out, okay? So no jumping at dark. After dark, okay, we've got to be able to see what's going on in there. Now, are these rules meant from keeping our kids from having fun and expressing themselves? Are they? No. We want them to enjoy this gift. But I can't tell you how many times when I look out my bedroom window, they're trying to bend the rules. Okay, I can't tell you how many times they're trying to move the trampoline over to the deck so they could jump on top of the top deck rail and like jump onto the trampoline like 12 feet below them. Okay? I can't tell you how many times they were convinced that they knew that the rules they were going to set up around this thing were better than what we knew. And I can't even tell you how many times I saw them laying on it going, we're so bored. But I think this is a picture, a glimpse into why God establishes boundaries around these gifts. Something else, though, I want you to realize, this is very important again, is that the trampoline is not the only gift that they have been given by grandparents. Grandparents, you're amazing, by the way. Thank you. Grandparents online watching, thank you, Grandma and Grandpa. They've also given our children a used pool, a basketball hoop, a fire pit, some other things. Like, this is not the only gift that they have been given. And the reason I bring that up is because I think at times we in the church can be very guilty of elevating sex and marriage above any other gift that God gives us. We are guilty of it. I'm guilty of it. I confess and I'm sorry. It goes back to some of my own story around just how I desire marriages to thrive. But, but we can elevate marriage and sex to be like, this is the gift, this is the ultimate gift. But when we do that, here is what we do. We leave no room for those who are part of our family, brothers and sisters who might be single or divorced, same-sex attracted, widows, widowers, Heck, that leaves no room for Jesus because Jesus didn't get married and didn't have sex. Was God the Father keeping his son from the ultimate gift? I don't think so. I think he just had a far greater version of it anticipated for Jesus and his people in Revelation 21. An eternal intimacy where Christ is united in relationship with his bride, his people. Jesus didn't have sex. Jesus didn't get married. Was he incomplete? No, no. He was the fullness of God in bodily form. Jesus himself 
he reaffirmed these same boundaries around these gifts that we see in Genesis. Now, two of those boundaries that we find in Genesis are the gift that sex was designed to be experienced in a complementary activity between a husband and a wife in the context of a covenant marriage. Why? Because it's all meant to point ahead to God and his bride and the covenant promise that he has made and he is keeping in Christ. Christ is the yes and amen to that. So, any sexual thoughts, words, or deeds that are outside the covenant marriage between a man and a woman is sin and goes against God's design for our sexual intimacy as his image bearers. Now, this includes heterosexual sex outside of marriage. This includes masturbation. This includes pornography, lusting and objectifying after another image bearer in any way, homosexual sex, the list goes on because we found a lot of different ways to take God's intimacy and his design for us and, and distort it. Paul actually tries to encapsulate, encapsulate some of this in the letter he writes to the Galatian church. He's trying to compare. He's saying, hey, you can walk by the Spirit or you can walk by your flesh and try to gratify the desires of your flesh. And so he's like, here's kind of what that looks like. He says this. He says, the acts of the flesh are, do I have that in there? Did I not put that one in there? Maybe not. Sorry. Lots of slides today. Here, here we go. He says this. The acts of the sinful nature are obvious. This is Galatians 5. Sexual immorality, impurity, debauchery, idolatry, and witchcraft. So it's not just sex stuff. Okay, Hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, and envy, drunkenness, orgies. That one in there. Okay, And then he says, and the like. And the reason he says and the like is he's like, I'm not going to get this all. There's all kinds of ways that we, we do this. We can't even create the comprehensive list because there's so many ways that we do this. And I say we, family. We. Not they, not those people. But we all too often try to gratify our own desires. But true intimacy is not about us gratifying our desires. True intimacy is not self-serving. It's self-sacrificing. Love your wives Paul says, as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. God was selfless in giving us life. He's selfless in giving us his image. He's selfless in giving us the gift of one another as brothers and sisters, giving us the gift of sexuality. He's selfless in being in relationship with us, a covenant with us, fulfilling it, pursuing it, all these things. Christopher West wrote a book called Our Bodies Tell God's Story. And in his book, I think he brings this really well together when he writes this. Over a period of about three years of intense prayerful study of God's Word, I came to see that the Bible takes us on a journey from a wedding in the earthly paradise of Eden to a wedding in the heavenly palace of the New Jerusalem. I came to see that the prophets use some boldly erotic images in describing God's love for his people, that the intimate love poetry of the Song of Songs, we didn't even cover that one, by the way, left that one out, was a window into things of heaven, and that the joining of spouses in one flesh was a profound mystery that revealed Christ's love for the church. In short, the spousal imagery in the scriptures was bringing my faith to life, shedding light on the entire mystery of our creation, fallen redemption in Christ. Yes, yes, there was more than the starvation diet and the fast food diet. It's called the marriage feast of the Lamb. And Christ didn't come to repress our desires. He came to redeem our desires, to heal them, to redirect human thirst and hunger towards his eternal banquet of love. Can I get an amen? 
This is a beautiful picture. So as we close, I want to take us back to Jesus' interchange with the Sadducees in the context of Matthew 22, because it seems like they're trying to trap Jesus, trying to prove there's no resurrection, and presents this riddle. But again, let's look at this. Let's look at Jesus, what he says again. He says, you're in error. In other words, you have been deceived, you have been led astray, because you do not know the scriptures or the power of God. Family, when it comes to our identities, when it comes to our intimacy, when it comes to our sexuality, I wonder if sometimes we try to trap Jesus so we can justify ourselves, our desires, our choices. Or I think sometimes I wonder if we, we try to think of this in terms of other people and how they need to be discipled in sexual things and not us needing to be discipled in the areas of sexuality. But I just wonder if Jesus would respond with clarity and compassion to us by saying this, you, are, you have been led astray you, ha- you are being deceived, or you have been deceived because you don't know the word of God or his power. Family, do we know the word of God? Do we know how God's word lays out creation, fall, redemption, restoration, how that plays into our identity, our intimacy, our sexuality, our bodies? One of the reasons we're doing this series is so that you may come to know what the Word of God says about these things. So that Jesus wouldn't say to us, you don't know the Scriptures. We have to know the Scriptures about these things. The other thing that we need to do is know the power of God. Do we know the power of God? The power of God to redeem any sexual brokenness, any brokenness in our identities or our intimacy? Do we know the power of God to overcome those things in Christ Jesus? Do we know the power of God to make a covenant with us and keep a covenant with us? Do we know the power of God to put Christ on the cross to die, to bring us back into relationship with him so we'd have an eternal intimacy? Do we know the word of God and do we know his power? Family, that is our desire for this series. Now, there is much more to be said. Can you just uh, trust me on that? I cut seven pages. But this is just week one. Okay? I wanted to try to answer every question. I answered almost all. You probably came up with more questions now. Thanks, Troy. Thanks for that. If you look at this next slide, what we have is, is a couple of things. I want you to do a turn and talk. I'm going to pray in a minute, but... This, this QR code, you can submit questions. The desire that we have is over the next three weeks, we're going to hopefully address these questions that come up. We're going to have Lou here, Super Bowl Sunday, so next Sunday from 1215 to 215, he's going to have an open Q&A that you can come to. We'd love to have you be a part of that. But if you have questions you want to submit, please submit those. We understand. We want to have this dialogue. We're going to begin this dialogue. I'm going to have you turn and talk in just a second, but family, we're just, we're just in creation. We need to walk through fall, redemption, and restoration as well and see the arc of what God's good, good news, the gospel story has to say into our identities, our intimacy, our sexuality, and our bodies. Let's pray. Gracious Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you that your son Jesus came to be the word. Thank you that he came to be power, your power. Father, we may not always know the word, but Jesus knew And he came to help us understand the clarity of who you are and what you desire for us. He also came with great compassion and mercy, understanding that he is wanting to redeem every kind of brokenness that we find ourselves in because of sin. Father, I pray that you would help us to to lift our eyes up to him. We pray that you'd help us to look ahead to Revelation 21 and see what you've not only done, but what you are doing in our midst to take us to that point to bring us to that point, to reveal your truth and to reveal your heart. 
Father, may we be a place where we can wrestle through these things together as a family of faith. May we be a place of great clarity, but great and amazing compassion as well. We pray this for your sake and your name and your glory, Jesus. And all God's people said, amen. Take a, take a couple minutes and ask um, just these two questions of someone near you. What things have most influenced your understanding of sexuality? And what's maybe one concept today that stuck out to you and why? Don't let anyone sit alone. If you see someone sitting alone, uh, invite them in to be family and process through this for a couple minutes. Then we'll sing a song in closing.
Thank you, everyone, for taking that time to just speak with each other. I know there's a lot <laughs> to talk about. Um, thank you, Troy, for that message and all the work that's been put into it uh, for this series this month. So uh, we're just, if you'll stand with us, we're going to sing one more song.
coming after me There's no wall you won't kick down Lie you won't tear down Coming after me There's no shadow you won't light up Mountain you won't climb up Coming after me today from Genesis to Revelation. If you're here this morning and, and you would love to have someone pray for you, we'd love to bless you with prayer. There's people at the front who will pray with you after the gathering. We encourage you to either grab a handout or check your email announcements about what's going on the rest of this month. Uh, be on top of that. You have to register for a couple things. Um, if you're going to come to them, we'd love to have you join us in those. Um, let me just finish with uh, beginning with the end of mind again. God's amazing love culminates like this. And I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. There was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Now the dwelling of God is with men, and he will live with them. They will be his people. And God himself will be with them and be their God. Family, can we go from this place seeking to know the word of God and increasingly know the power of God in our identity, our intimacy, our bodies, and our sexuality. And all God's people said, amen. Amen. God bless. Well, thanks for joining us this morning and worshiping with us virtually. We'd love for you to take a next step. Uh, maybe that's joining a group. Maybe that is serving in some way, but some way in a family of faith near you taking a step beyond the virtual gathering. 
Yeah, what we read in Scripture is that the body is meant to build one another up into the fullness and maturity of Christ. And that cannot happen really alone. We don't find uh, lone wolf Christians, if you would, in the New Testament. And so we would so strongly encourage you to engage in your local faith community where you are or here in the body at Kettlebrook Church. We'd love to have you take a next step in that way. So God bless and hope to see you soon. God bless.